Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. You know, ladies and gentlemen, when um, the government wants to intrude, to poke, probe, just nose around a little bit in uh, your data or mine. Help yourself to mine, by the way. No, don't. Um, when they when they want to do that, uh, uh, the defenders of that policy always say, "Well, if you've got nothing to hide, what's your what are you worried about? What are you scared of?" In response, this in the annals of the wheels of military justice, they they grind exceedingly fine. Deadline Guantanamo Bay. This is from Carol Rosenberg of the Miami Herald, the only mainstream reporter who regularly covers events at Guantanamo Bay because there's no news there. But this from her this weekend. The 9-11 trial judge, yes, there's a trial going on. It's in the very preliminary stages here in the year 2018. The 9-11 trial judge has ruled that he and the prosecution did nothing wrong in authorizing the destruction of a former CIA black site prison without giving advance notice to defense attorneys. You know, they just they just destroyed it because what, what do you what do you need? What do you need to know about it? What do you need to see? The uh, ruling wasn't available on the Pentagon War Court website, which uh, usually posts court filings three or four weeks later. After intelligence analysts, uh, you know, go through it to see if what, if anything, the public can't see. Nothing to not see here. Three attorneys who saw the black site ruling said Judge Pohl, is an army colonel, in the same army, army that, you know, runs Guantanamo. But that's rejected a request that he step down, remove prosecutors, or provide other remedies for the episode in which prosecutors secretly and unilaterally obtained permission from the judge to decommission a former CIA prison, without notice to defense attorneys. Court filings and uh, presentations in the court showed that the judge threw the prosecution as if they're part of the same thing, authorized the spy agency to dismantle the overseas site in a nation which has never been publicly disclosed, although, hello, Poland, at a time when Pohl publicly had a protection order on any surviving remnants of the Bush administration-era overseas prison network. That is to say, this very judge had issued a protection order preventing the destruction from these sites. But that was in public. Prosecutors using their national security powers got behind-the-scenes unilateral permission from the judge to give the defense attorneys pictures and some sort of 3D diagram as a substitute for... uh, going over to the real place to get real evidence. The CIA held the alleged 9-11 plotters in the secret prisons from 2002 to 2006 using waterboarding, sleep deprivation, rectal and other physical abuse, plus other enhanced interrogation techniques. We call them torture. We here at the Lashodom. The judge wrote the defense attorneys failed to show that, quote, the physical evidence is of such central importance to an issue that is essential to a fair trial or that there is no adequate substitute for the physical evidence, unquote. He issued the 16-page ruling just before the government shut down. 
Defense lawyers argued that with advance notice of a plan to destroy the site, they would have asked a federal judge, like a real judge, to stop the destruction. Pohl, the military judge, denied the request to call witnesses to demonstrate the quality of evidence that was lost or to explain to the judge that defense lawyers have an ethical obligation to visit and uh, uh, investigate at the site itself. That's a form, of pre a form of pretrial preparation that prosecutors say is forbidden in this particular death penalty case. Just for perspective, too much perspective perhaps, it was the self-same CIA which had videotaped many of these enhanced interrogations whose chief of uh, the anti-terrorism section, Jose Rodriguez, defied a court order ordering him to maintain possession of those videotapes, and he destroyed them. What do they have to hide? Hello, welcome to the show.
from the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, speaking of what do they have to hide, news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Well, there were these uh, lawsuits brought um, in the United Kingdom, our friends over there, uh, against Nice Corp, which ran a newspaper a newspaper called The News of the World. Uh, some of those cases were brought by Vic Reeves, an actor, Kate Thornton, and two others, against both The News of the World and The Sun. Those cases have just now, some years later, been confidentially settled. Why now? Well, just around the corner was a six-week trial due to hear the allegations of the cover-up by senior executives at Nice Corp's British tabloids. Last-minute deal this week earned both sides, the defense and the prosecution, a rebuke from the judge, Mr. Justice Mann. Mr. Justice Mann! Who complained that issues important to another 47 hacking cases in the pipeline had been had not been determined in this case they would have heard allegations of wrongdoing by James Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks Murdoch one of uh, Rupert's sons Rebecca Brooks kind of uh, the daughter he never had except he had one um, both still in uh, in seats of power at Nice Corp after skedaddling for a little while after the phone hacking cases first made the headlines. A confidential agreement, a settlement was agreed with comedian Reeves, TV presenter Thornton, Coronation Street actor Jimmy Harkishan, and talent agent Chris Herbert. Nice Corp, specifically news group newspapers, is expected to pay their legal costs about uh, $5.5 million. That's not nothing. The uh, plaintiff's lawyers had told the court the claimants would allege criminality at the most senior level, James Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks, as part of the case. James is the younger son. He was executive chairman of the tabloid's British owner, News UK, and is now chief executive of 21st Century Fox. Good to see you, sir. How are you? Can I get you some coffee, sir? Brooks has returned to her old job as chief executive of News UK part of Nice Corp. The case had also been due to hear allegations of hacking by journalists at The Sun. Now, see, they, they shut down News of the World when the hacking thing broke. But there have never been, or actually there have been uh, allegations of uh, hacking at The Sun, but News UK has never admitted any that took place there, nor any wrongdoing by senior executives. The last-minute agreement means neither of these issues were determined. If there's nothing to hide, why don't you... News of the World was closed in 2011. The judge, Mr. Justice Mann, I mean, Mr. Justice Mann, noted that Nice Corp had made admissions of unlawful activity at the News of the World, but had made none at the Sun in the context of the pretrial submissions. He complained the case had taken years to prepare to reach the trial stage. They have stages? Well, they got agents, and that the other litigants in the pipeline had now been deprived of the opportunity to see issues of liability being resolved in a test case. The judge told the court the last-minute settlement was a serious matter because the court had devoted a significant amount of time and resources to preparing them for trial due to the perceived importance of the case. Future hacking litigation, he said, would have to be dealt with differently. 
You mean like speedily or news of nice, nice corp, ladies and gentlemen, nice people doing nice things. We haven't heard a lot about the LIBOR scandal lately. That was uh, one that I was uh, hipping you to a while back where banks were rigging the price of uh, the interest rate. Uh, Every day, the banks are supposed to report what they're lending at, and um, they would rig that rate so as to uh, make it nicer for themselves, oddly enough. Um, a lot of a lot of major international banks. The Ellen LIBOR referred to London. That's where that this particular rate was set. The LIBOR rate, which a lot of banks used as their benchmark for what interest rate they charged. A lot of major international banks pled guilty and paid, you know, hefty fines for banks to uh, resolve those cases. But now this week, according to the Financial Times, nine banks are accused of rigging a key Canadian lending rate. Canada. A cluster of big banks has been named in a new lawsuit alleging manipulation of a key benchmark ruling, uh, a key benchmark lending rate in Canada. This opens up a new front in the global scandal that's led to billions of dollars in fines and penalties. The plaintiff is the Fire and Police Pension Association of Colorado. It's accusing nine banks of colluding over a period of seven years, well, that would be 63 bank years, in the manipulation of the Canadian dealer-offered rate, the CDOR, in order to boost profits for their derivatives trading businesses. Well, they had a good excuse, boosting profits. Aren't we... Isn't that... The uh, CDOR is a benchmark created by the Canadian Bankers Association. It's supposed to reflect the cost of borrowing Canadian dollars in North America, according to the lawsuit. Instead, the suit claims the banks conspired to suppress CDOR by making artificially low submissions that did not reflect the actual rates at which they were lending. On hundreds of days during the period in question, according to the suit, the bank's submissions were identical. Well, that just means they were right. No, that suggests a pattern of collusion through electronic message platforms, phones, and emails, according to the suit. By low-balling submissions, the bank stood to make more money from their derivatives businesses, from which they aggressively marketed and sold interest rate swaps, forward rate agreements, and other CDOR-based products to pension funds in North America. The lower the CDOR rate, the less interest the banks would owe on such positions. At their peak, those derivatives were about 50 times bigger overall than the bank's aggregate CDOR-based loan portfolios, meaning the derivatives dwarfed the actual assets involved. The case suggests the banks are still on the hook for their roles in setting bank mark interest rates, which underpin hundreds of billions of dollars of loans and hundreds of trillions of derivatives. Yes, this derivative thing, it's big. uh, I think at the time of the uh, 2008, (laughs) the derivatives market was bigger than the world economy. Really? Big banks have so far paid about $10 billion in fines to authorities around the world. A handful of traders have gone to jail on rate-rigging charges. Until the scandal erupted six years ago, Canada's main bank regulators kept a distance from the C-door setting process. But three years ago, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions announced that in view of the global crackdown by regulators on this whole messy affair, it would take more of an active role in oversight and would examine the governance and risk controls that the banks involved. Nine big banks, including Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, HSBC, 
There's a there's a tourist bus around L.A. that has ads for HSBC calling it the world's best bank. Just count, check, just Google the amount of fines HSBC has paid for money laundering and uh, interest rate setting in a finagly kind of way, and then decide what you think the world's best bank should be doing. Uh, also involved, the National Bank of Canada, the Royal Bank of Canada, and T- Toronto Dominion Bank. That's TD. Many of the banks couldn't uh, comment or wouldn't comment. Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, and HSBC have collectively paid about $4.4 billion in fines to several government regulators for manipulating at least 11 financial benchmarks in dollars, yen, Swiss francs, and Singapore dollars. Well, you got to be one of the world's best banks to pull all that off, don't you? The plaintiff transacted more than a billion point two in derivatives based on this benchmark during the period in question. And it's claiming violations of the Sherman Act. That's the antitrust statute that we don't... Is that still in the books? Do we even know... Is there anti-what? The Commodity Exchange Act and the Racketeer-Influenced Corrupt Organization Act, RICO. Oh, RICO? Yes, sir. Let me get them on that. We all RICO here. Now, are we number one? No, we're not number one. This, uh, by the we, and this, of course, I refer to those of us in the United States of America, because we, we are number one, except no. The average fuel efficiencies in uh, airlines operating trans-Pacific routes for the most recent year, measured 2016, uh, the top two tied for number one, the most fuel-efficient airlines, Hainan Airlines and All Nippon Airways, tied for number one. Air New Zealand, number three. EVA Air, number four. China Airlines, number six. Air China. No, sorry. The EVA Air and China Airlines tied for four. Air China, number six. Virgin Australia tied for six with Air China and Fiji and American Airlines. So they, uh, American, we get in at number six. Then Japan Airlines tied with Delta and United at number 10. So we're number six and number 10. The worst is Qantas. Good on you, mate, at number 20. But once again, ladies and gentlemen, just to remind you, we're not number one. We've got the ultra-modern knack of getting oil from the deepest crack. So give the boys just a bit of slack and say a hearty what the frack. What the frack, ladies and gentlemen. Here's a surprise. You know that um, there's been radioactivity found in the wastewater at fracking wells. Just a lovely byproduct of fracking. Now, more than seven years after Pennsylvania officials requested that the disposal of radium-laden fracking wastewater be restricted, a new study out of Duke University finds that high levels of radioactivity persist in stream sediments at three disposal sites and the, the news is that's coming from the disposal of wastewater from oil and gas wells that have not been fracked, just ordinary oil and gas wells under current 
Pennsylvania regulations, they can still be dumped into local streams. It's not only fracking fluids that pose a risk. Produced water, that is to say wastewater, from conventional or non-fracked oil and gas wells also contains high levels of radium, which is a radioactive element, says Avner Vengosh, professor of geochemistry and water quality at Duke. Disposal of this wastewater, he says, causes an accumulation of radium on the sediments of the streams that decays over time and converts into other radioactive elements. Well, at least they aren't all radium. About 650 times higher the level of radiation in the sediments than radiation in upstream sediments. In some cases, it even exceeded the radioactivity level that it requires disposal only at federally designated radioactive waste disposal sites. Do we have any of those? Are they still open? Our analysis confirms this accumulation of radioactivity is derived from the disposal of conventional oil and gas, wa uh, gas wastewater after 2011 when authorities limited the disposal of fracked water, says a Ph.D. student who led the study. The radionuclide ratios we measured in the sediments and the rates of decay and growth of radioactive elements in the impacted sediments allow us to age date the contamination to after 2011. This was published in Environmental Science and Technology. So we get hot stuff from oil and gas, even if it ain't fracked. What the non-frack? And now... News of the Godly. Pope Francis, you know, the good pope, has accused abuse victims in Chile of slandering a bishop because they say he protected a pedophile priest. This, according to the New York Times, upends his efforts to rehabilitate the Catholic Church's reputation while visiting down there. Francis told reporters this week there was not a shred of evidence against Bishop Juan Barrios Madrid, although victims of Reverend Fernando Caradima, Chile's most notorious priest, have accused Madrid of being complicit in the priest's crimes. The day someone brings me proof against Bishop Barros, then I will talk, Francis said, before celebrating Mass. But there is not one single piece of evidence. It is all slander. Is that clear? What is he on? Citizens Band Radio there? The Pope's comments set off a storm in Chile, raising questions about his commitment to repairing the damage from sex abuse scandals and improving the decline in the Church's image and following in the traditionally devout country. Pope Francis's attack on the Caradima victims is a stunning setback, a co-director said co a co-director of bishopaccountability.org, a group that monitors abuse cases. He has just, that co-director says, he has just turned back the clock to the darkest days of this crisis. Who knows how many victims now will decide to stay hidden for fear they will not be believed. Father Caradima was convicted by the Vatican in 2011 of abusing teenage boys beginning in the 1980s. <laughs> And he was ordered to lead a life of prayer and penitence. That year, a judge found the allegations truthful and reliable, but dismissed a criminal case because, you know, the statute of limitations, that old thing. Bishop Barros was part of Father Caradima's inner circle. Ouch. And according to one of the victims, witnessed the priest's advances on him. As if I could have taken a selfie or picture while Caradima abused me or others, and Juan Barros stood there watching it all, one of the victims wrote on Twitter. Despite the allegations against Father Barros, Pope Francis appointed him Bishop of Osorno in southern Chile, 
In 2015, dozens of priests and legislators said at the time they opposed the move. The Pope told a group of tourists visiting Vatican City three years ago that people in the town who protested the appointment were, quote, dumb, unquote. And he's, he's the good Pope. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
from the home of the homeless. This is Le Show. Existing as are you, probably, if you're listening in the United States, in a country where, as we're told, the government has shut down. Uh, which doesn't really mean what it sounds like. They're, they're, it's the non-essential activities of the federal government. And we, we cherish those, but they're, they're uh, shut down for the moment. But, you know... The TSA can still ask you to empty your pockets and wand you at the airport and stuff like important stuff like that. But it's it it caps a week of um, the first anniversary of the inauguration of <laughs> President Trump, um, and caps two weeks of topsy turvy. I think it'd be the most neutral way of describing the contacts between the White House, members of the Democratic Party led by Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, and the Republican Party led by Mitch McConnell in the Senate and Paul Ryan in the House. It was uh, a couple weeks ago, Tuesday, that there was that widely televised 55-minute meeting, kind of a meeting, between the president and congressional leaders where he said, you send me a bill, I'll sign it in terms of uh, funding, continuing to fund the government because the uh, Congress has failed, as it often does, to pass a budget. And so it passes in lieu of a budget something called a continuing resolution, which basically says we're not going to uh, make a new budget f- for the next little while. We'll just spend at the same rate on everything as we have been. And... The last one of those ran out this past Friday night, and it takes 60 votes in the Senate to pass a new one, and the Republicans don't have 60 votes in the Senate, which meant they had to do business with the Democrats, and the Democrats don't really fancy doing business with the Republicans at this point in time. Uh, So there was a condition attached for the Democrats' participation, which was a um, solution for so-called DACA, which is the provision enacted not by law but by presidential executive order under the Obama administration that protects the whatever the number is. It's depending on whom you read or hear. It varies between 800,000 and 1.2 million. People who came into the United States as youngsters illegally brought in by their parents who entered illegally. The parents are a different matter, but the question is these youngsters who came here illegally but uh, through no fault of their own. And that was the resolution that the Democrats thought they had when President uh, <laughs> President Trump said, uh, you, you send me a bill that you agree on and I'll sign it. And... Um, that was Tuesday a week ago. Thursday a week ago, there was a, a conference between Republican and Democratic leaders, uh, Chuck Schumer, the Democrat, and Lindsey Graham, the Republican, uh, around 10 o'clock in the morning where they thought they had the president's agreement. Um, by a couple hours later, there was a very angry meeting, according to Schumer. That's the meeting at which the S-hole comment was uttered, along with, according to many of the attendees, a lot of other very angry rhetoric. Uh, 
and things seemed to spiral downhill from there. The president had a last-ditch meeting with Chuck Schumer, the Democratic Senate leader, on Friday, just before the deadline for a new continuing resolution arrived and uh, passed by without congressional action. Uh, So now what we're seeing is um, each party trying to blame the other for this impasse. Um, Schumer has said publicly, negotiating with the president is like negotiating with Jell-O. Oh, you're orange. No, you're green. I don't know what negotiating with Jell-O would be like. Um, The presidential press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Friday called the people who didn't agree to uh, a new continuing resolution, quote, losers, unquote. We know where that word came from. And um, Graham, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, who... um, lost to Trump in the presidential primary, lost big time, as he himself admits, was uh, drubbed by Trump, um, had called him a con man during that primary campaign, had made had spent about the last three or four months trying to woo Trump, trying to build a relationship, have, playing golf with him, uh, praising him in public um, this week, saying, well, I tried. You know, the way to approach Trump is just to praise him in public. And uh, he likes people who like him, and he doesn't like people who don't like him. It's a binary world, really, when you're Donald Trump. Um, He was basically making a plea with Trump over television. He would go on television and basically would be talking as if to an audience of one. In the midst of all this, the president's chief of staff, General John Kelly, had a meeting with Democrats uh, in Congress. And um, what leaked out of that, because everything leaks these days, was that he told uh, the Democrats, well, the president's uh, insistence on a wall to keep out immigrants from Mexico, which has been one of the stumbling point uh, block, blocks, stumbling blocks in this stumbled negotiation. Um, That was a campaign issue. That was a campaign slogan. And uh, Kelly said the president was uninformed on some of the issues involving immigration. I don't think he said uniformed. I think he said uninformed. And uh, that the president's views had evolved since then. And um, shortly after that became public, the president tweeted, The wall is the wall! He was uh, channeling, I guess, Gertrude Stein for a moment there. Yes, it it all just gets all tangled up, but uh, there's a way to untangle it. This week, for the first time, a promised shutdown becomes all too real. And as the businessman turned chief executive ponders the teams, his big question, as always, is who knows what to do next? Nancy. Yes, sir. Good to be back in the boardroom. You know, Chuck was here just a few hours ago. Mm Mm-hmm. He told me. You talk to Chuck? Every day. You knew that. Can I tell you this? I don't know what I knew, believe me. But here's what I do know. 
One of the teams is going to solve this shutdown thing. Is it going to be yours? Sir, you know as well as I do that we don't control either House of Congress. I don't know what I know. I can say that. But look, the clock is ticking. We're all aware of that, sir. Lights are humming, the toilet's gurgling. This place is a total dump. We could put some funding for fixing the White House into a CR. Both sides could agree on. If that's what you want. Yeah, I keep hearing that from all the teams. Is it so hard to know what I want? <laughs> In all fairness, it does seem to change from day to day. So does the freaking weather. I don't hear anybody bitching about that. Well, but look, you've got a big task this week. I have a big task every week. I have to organize Democrats. Bigger than that. You have to get Chuck to talk to Mitch. It's the only way this gets solved. Can you do it? I don't know if you know this, sir, but senators usually don't like to take advice from members of what they call the other house. They have a, a, a kind of thing about it. I have a kind of thing, too, Nancy. It's called the President of the United Freaking States. I could fire all of you. Actually, and I don't mean to contradict you or anything, but I... I don't think you can. Well, here's the deal. I don't like firing people. That was just my character on TV. My character in real life is much less complex. So what do you think? You're up to the task, Madam Ex-Speaker? I'll talk to Chuck. Great. Of course, I talk to Chuck every day. But he already knew that. General Kelly. Yes, sir? You, you don't have to call me, sir, you know. I know, sir. Yeah, you keep doing it. Yes, I do, sir. It's, it's, it's like a general thing. Well, I, I do say it to every man I talk to, yes, sir. No, I mean, it's because you're a general. Hmm. Yeah, I like generals. They remind me of what I could have been if I uh, didn't have the thing. The bone spurs, sir? Well, whatever. Look, general, do I look uninformed to you? <laughs> Not particularly, sir. Seriously. I walk into a room, you see me, you don't say to yourself, there goes an uninformed guy, do you? No, sir, but... But you went over to Chuck and Nancy's team and told them I was uninformed. I sat on certain aspects of immigration law, which is pretty complex, sir, in all fairness. In all fairness, I ought to put your no-bone-spur military ass on the express train straight to Steve Bannonville, right? Not what I would advise, sir, no. You know, it's like Sarah likes to say, because she's a real team player. We litigated that during the election, whether I'm uninformed, and I won, so... So, now you're trying to govern, and, uh, And you're trying to control me, right? I'm trying to control the process, sir. That's... That's what you hired me to do. I hired you to get that awful Reince Priebus out of my face. He smelled like wild root cream oil. You know that old hair tonic? Yes, sir. Like... Brill cream, sir. But we've got a situation here, sir. And you've got a task to fulfill. Yes, sir. I hope it's not going down to meet with the Democrats and uh, saying that I was misinformed about you being uninformed, sir. No. And it's not to tell them that I've evolved, either. I, I said that already, sir. I know. My Republican friends tell me we don't use that word. Makes them think of monkeys or something. So look, here's the story. Your task this week is to get this shutdown thing solved. Can you do that? It'll be a lot easier if, uh, just for a few days, you don't refer to any kind of holes, sir. Well, that'll be a lot easier if for the rest of your time on the team, you don't call me uninformed. 
Yes, sir. Because to tell you the truth, I'm probably the most informed person you've ever met, right? Yes, sir. Lindsay. Yes, Mr. President. I thought we were friends. I thought we were too, sir. I thought all that con man BS was way, way behind us. The running the team, you got there fair and square. I like golfing with you. Nothing I'd rather do on a Sunday. Yeah. Well, you don't have any family responsibilities to speak of. Even if I did. But then you attack me in public. I gotta see that as disloyal, right? Well, but remember, you were explaining to me about your language and how you're a New York street fighter, and uh, that's how you and, and Chuck understand each other, and your press secretary calls us losers. And, I see. Uh, I get it. You think that what's good for a goose deserves a gander. Hey, speaking of which, look at this women's march. You see any tens out there? Even any nines? They all look fine to me, sir. Yeah. Look, uh, it, this shutdown thing is going to hurt our team all the way up and down the ticket this fall. We need to get serious and... Lindsay, I couldn't be more serious if I was watching Steve Doocy. Now look, who voted for Trump? People who like government? Well, I, I wouldn't exactly say that, but... It's people who hate government, right? So what's just happened? For the first time, with one party totally in control, we've shut the government down. You don't think Trump's base likes that? <laughs> I have to think about that one for a minute. Well, talk to Stephen Miller. He'll explain it to you. Because your task this week... Yes, sir. ...is to keep the shutdown shut down. Can you do it? It's against every political instinct I have. Good. So that's a yes? New team, new tasks, same mission. We're going to make government shut down great again. Now, the world is his boardroom. The Presidentis. This week, before the TV shuts down, too. Yes, it will. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? I know I will. Soft, listen to the warm. Between droughts and floods, the last decade has offered water managers in the southwest United States a preview of how climate change could impact a supply largely dependent on winter snow. This year's disappointing snowpack according to Bloomberg, has them worried again. Water and climate change are joined at the hip, says Brad Udall at Colorado State, who published a paper earlier this year. That's pretty early, showing how climate change has reduced flows in the Colorado River. One of the primary impacts of a warming atmosphere are changes to our water cycle. Snowpack is 50% lower than the average at this point in the winter at dozens of basins in the southwest region. It's a major concern since there's a growing population where water supplies are often pushed to their limits even in good years or good good riches. The snow provides a steady supply of water for the Colorado River, which serves 40 million people spread from Denver to Los Angeles. It's not easy to spread those people like that. The problem is not just a lack of snow, but changes in how it's falling and melting. In uh, the western U.S., the snow line is receding to higher elevations. Below that line, rain is often falling instead of snow, meaning less precipitation is stored in the snowpack. Many of the uh, reservoirs were not built to hold a deluge of rain. As a result, they often have to release the water early to avoid flooding. Without predictable snowpack melts, it reduces reliability on the supply side, says a senior engineer for Southern California's Metropolitan Water District. Because 2017 was a wet year, most reservoirs have enough stored water to satiate municipal and agricultural demand through even a dry, hot summer. Water managers still need to respond to the long-term threat. New research from a Florida State University scientist has revealed a surprising relationship between surging atmospheric carbon dioxide and flower blooms in a remote tropical forest. Everybody likes flowers. Researchers studying the rich tropical forests of Panama's Barro, Colorado Island, found that climbing rates of carbon dioxide have set the stage for a multi-decade increase in overall flower production. It's good for flower ladies. The findings were outlined, outlined in a paper published in Global Change Biology. It's really remarkable, says the leader of the study. Over the past several decades, we've seen temperatures warming and carbon dioxide increasing, and our study found that this tropical forest has responded to that increase by producing more flowers. Plants, as you know, convert CO2 into energy in the form of sugars, which they can use to fuel any number of vital life processes. As more CO2 is released into the atmosphere, plants have the opportunity to produce a bounty of new energy, and they're allocating 
those swelling stores of energy toward increased reproductive activity, according to Eureka Alert. I know the feeling, Eureka Alert. Oceans are not the only bodies of water that acidify due to man-made climate change. Freshwater systems are likewise affected. This, in turn, could have an impact on the organisms living in them. That's the conclusion drawn by biologists at Ruhr Universität Bochum, following an analysis of long-term data from a number of freshwater reservoirs across Germany and controlled lab experiments with freshwater organisms. The uh, study is published in the journal Current Biology. We'll just apply current to the book. Last month at a New Orleans conference center that uh, once doubled as the storm shelter for uh, victims of the flooding, a group of polar scientists made a startling declaration. The Arctic as we know it is no more. The region is now definitively trending toward an ice-free state, the scientists said, with wide-ranging ramifications for ecosystems, national security, and the stability of the global climate system. This is according to Grist. Until roughly a decade or so ago, the region was holding up relatively well, despite warming at roughly twice the rate of the planet as a whole. But in recent years, it's undergone an abrupt change, which now defines it. The Arctic is our glimpse of the Earth in flux, transforming into something that's radically different from today. Acting NOAA Administrator Timothy Gallaudet emphasized the huge impact these changes were having on everything from tourism to fisheries to worldwide weather patterns. And a study published in the journal Current Biology about green sea turtles that nest along island beaches near Australia's Great Barrier Reef found that turtles born in areas most heated by climate change are 99.8% female. That's where the girls are. Turtles born further south along a cooler beach are only about 65% female. Me, myself, I'm... And uh, that's News of the Warm, copyrighted feature of this broadcast, making way for... We're so sorry. The Apologies of the Week. A former priest of sexually abusing boys in his care has expressed regret for his abhorrent crimes. Bernard Trainer, 64 was convicted of six charges of indecent assault about 20 years ago in Scotland for abuse carried out against four boys while he was a trainee priest helping out at a children's home. He'd said it was totally wrong that he'd been allowed to be a house parent at the St. Vincent's home without training or proper supervision. And the longtime principal of Bishop Hendricken High School in Warwick, Rhode Island, who abruptly retired this week over an inflammatory video, apologized and asked for forgiveness for his recorded statement. Jay Brennan retired the day after the clip was forwarded to the school's administration. It's a six-second video, which was secretly re- recorded. It was a 13-word sentence from Brennan that included disparaging splur- slurs for black and Jewish people. That's getting a lot into six seconds. Brennan sent the emailed apology to alumni Friday. I'm asking for forgiveness for my words, which were hurtful, ignorant, and contrary to every Christian belief. I'm not a racist. I'm not an anti-Semite in my heart. I truly care for each member of the community. The devil made him do it. Hey, here's another great bank doing some more great work. Wells Fargo, internal technical errors that resulted in some online customers being charged twice have been corrected. We're sorry if you had an issue with your bill payments, the company tweeted. Technical teams have corrected the errors. Wells Fargo Bank customers signed up for automatic online bill pay. Good idea. Complained they were getting double charged for transactions. In some cases, their accounts were overdrawn by hundreds of dollars. Interesting how the errors never 
accrue in the favor of the customer? Nutty. Nutty coincidence. Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin this week publicly apologized for a botched surgery performed four years ago that left a scalpel inside an Army veteran. He said he would use the incident as a teaching moment to create a safer environment for veterans at VA hospitals. Are they going to charge the um, vet for the inability to use the scalpel for the last four years? I don't know. After weeks of intense scrutiny over Apple's decision to slow down performance in older iPhone models, like mine, to prevent unexpected battery shutdowns, CEO Tim Cook apologized for not being more transparent about the feature in an interview with ABC News. We said Apple reached out to iPhone users to alert them about the company's practice. That's nutty. I didn't feel the reach. I didn't feel the feel. Rapper Offset caught heat after one of his verses on a track, Boss Life, was criticized for being homophobic. His verse ended with the line, I cannot vibe with queer. Sparked a backlash among fans, despite the rapper's claim he didn't write the line about gay people. I'm sorry. I apologize if I offended anybody, he said. And not in rhyme. Two Austin high school students in Texas apologized for social media posts made on Martin Luther King Jr. Day that showed the students saying, it's N-word day. School staff said they immediately took action addressing the posts with the students involved, their families, and student body. All students will be participating in a circle of trust activity next week. Oh, it'll be a fly on the wall who can get out. Shane Stant, the hitman who was hired to attack Nancy Kerrigan with a baton 24 years ago, says he's regretful for the act. He told Inside Edition he's happy Harding, Tanya Harding, is getting her moment of redemption. But he says the person who truly deserves an apology is Kerrigan. He said if he could, he would tell Kerrigan, I hope she understands that I was sorry for what I did and that I'm a different person. He served 15 months in prison, turned his life around after getting out. He became a bouncer. <laughs> Not really a 180. The U.S.-based DIY network apologized this week for an anti-Semitic comment that was aired during one of its programs, a network you may not ever have heard of. In an episode of the show Texas Flip and Move, host Tony Snow offered to sell a refurbished school bus to a musician for 36000 He readily agreed to the price. You're not even going to bicker a little bit, Jewish down, Snow asked in response. In an email statement to the Jerusalem Post, the DIY network Apologize for the fact that an inappropriate comment unfortunately made it past our team. The network did not respond to questions about any consequences for snow or pack. And a government official appointed by President Trump has resigned after racist and sexist comments he made were uncovered. Carl Higby was at the Corporation for National Community Service, which runs volunteer groups. He made the comments on an Internet radio show before joining the Trump administration. He said on Twitter he was sorry for the comments. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over this audio device of your choice. And it will be just like negotiating with banana cream pie, if you'd agree to join with me then. Well, you already. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh in, uh, Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, yes, there's still email. Think of it. Uh, the playlist of the music heard here on and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, collector's items, every single one of them, that's all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. Just a note saying my farewell to my compadre and former stablemate at the old place, the great Joe Frank. Check him out at joefrank.com. Amazing radio work. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>